Street Epistemology is a wonderful approach that anyone can learn. You can learn more about street epistemology at streetepistemology.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Epistemic, episode number 24, The Socratic Method. I'm your host, Reed, uh, from Cordial Curiosity, and I have here today Anthony Magabosco. What's up, Anthony? Hey, what's up, dude? Long time no see. Yeah, not much. And today we have a special guest, Doug Dean. What's up, Doug? Hello, all. Hello, Doug. Nice to have you here. Yeah. Nice to be here. So to start things off, uh, Anthony, you had like a letter to read? I do. We we got a little bit of fan mail for the Epistemic crew, so I wanted to share it with everybody here. And this is being shared with permission. Let me just drag this over here. Uh, yeah, it says, hey there, Anthony. My name is Andrew, and I'm a huge fan of street epistemology. I listen to the Epistemic podcast, and I know you guys have mentioned that having SE conversations over text communication is difficult. Nevertheless, since it's too cold where I live to talk to people on the street, I've decided to turn to the internet to practice my SE skills with strangers. Where does someone go to have cordial conversations? That was probably like a tip to you there, Reed. Where does someone go to have cordial conversations with strangers on the internet? Reddit, of course. I've started sending PMs, private messages, to Reddit users who express a God belief, asking if I question them about it, and it's working. I found it can almost start... Sorry, I found it can almost start to feel like having a pen pal. What works for me are no longer messages, almost like letters that culminate in a couple of SE type questions. These tend to elicit thoughtful responses that keep the conversation going. Here's an excerpt from one response that I recently received. I do have to admit that our ongoing conversations, which I enjoy very much, by the way, and I really appreciate you taking the time to give me thoughtful answers slash information, have gotten me to think more about why I'm a Christian and why I believe what I believe. I don't know that the conclusion will change, but the discussion is causing me to question again some of the assumptions I've uh, assumed for a while. End quote. To me, that feels like a huge breakthrough. Thanks for all the content you and the epistemic team are putting out there, Andrew. Epistemic cool. team. The epistemic cool. team. <laughs> nice. Love that. Our 24th episode, and we finally got some fan mail. Now, I mean, we've, we've been getting some very nice comments on our videos and that type of thing, uh, but that was a really nice message that we got. So thank you, Andrew, for sending that in. Sure, yeah, thanks, Andrew. Um, I got word, Objectively Dan is incoming any minute now, so hopefully he'll be able to join us. But I guess I'll go ahead and introduce our guest here today, Doug Dean. Um, he is a retired, licensed educational psychologist and psychotherapist. His specialties are in the assessment of neurologically-based processing disorders causing learning and behavior disabilities. His research includes communication theory and paradox as applied to observable interactions between individuals as they relate to one another, especially within the psychotherapeutic context. So, Doug, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> Well, communication theory is probably a offshoot from behavior theory and behaviorism, where we really look at the observable behaviors between people. In other words, everybody kind of sends signals to each other 
sometimes um, the context of a relationship is determined by how somebody sets the tone. And we analyze those things in order to figure out how better to serve people. Awesome. So it's a, it's like a, a tool set for therapy. That's a, yeah. My, my primary um, education has been in psychotherapy, psychotherapy itself. Although I do a lot, or I used to do a lot of uh, assessment of students who have learning disabilities and behavior problems in order to, to create a uh, behavior plan and a scheme for helping them learn. So I worked cool. in the schools most of my life. Awesome. So our, our show title is The Socratic Method. What does this have to do with The Socratic Method? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I came from a Christian background, and I got into Kierkegaard. Um, Kierkegaard's an existential um, theologian who was uh, Danish or Dutch. No Danish. Uh, lived, I think, in the 17th century, 18th century. And... Um, so I was real excited about that, and I got a degree in psychology. And I think the first week of graduate school, the instructor was teaching, and he, we, we, in my program, we went over all the various different forms of psychotherapy and had to um, learn each one. And the first ones that um, he showed, I, I, well, that's Socratic. I mean, that's just Socratic dialogue. So that kind of started out my interest in it. And philosophy has been a, um, a hobby for me. The psychology was just the way I made my living. So I wound up writing a paper about 10 years ago, and I put it on the shelf. And in retirement, I brought it out, and I met Richard Carrier, and showed it to him and he was excited about it and, and helped me. Um, he, he gave me a couple of hints and I um, went ahead and uh, gave it to a publisher and they, they, uh, um, they published it. It's applied philosophy is what they call it. They're practical philosophy. We'll have to put a link to your article and it's a pretty quick read. It's like, I don't know, 10 pages or something like that. I don't remember it really taking a lot of time to it's crank through it. Yeah. And we have Objectively Dan here with us. What's up, Dan? Yes, we do. What's up, Dan? You're muted. Hey, everybody. Sorry I'm late. I got home. It turns out the, the door to my backyard was open, and my dogs were out. So I had to go out looking for them. Luckily, I found them. I just oh, come back no. here. So, okay. yep. But here, there's one of them right there. It's all You have good. two dogs? <laughs> All right. Yeah, my parent. I'm at my parents' house, and uh, we had three. One of them died earlier this year, and uh, we have two other ones. Yeah. So. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it's all good. Out. I'm here now, ready to talk. Glad to have you here, dude. <laughs> yeah. We just read a letter from a fan, and then uh, Doug's been giving us a little bit of background. Now, what was what's interesting about Doug that I should share is that I met him in person in England, but even pr that was at QDCon in 2017, I think. So we met for the first time, but we've worked together on a lot of street epistemology related stuff. Uh, the, the thing that, that comes to my mind is there was a big initiative to convert the videos to text so that we can do some analysis on it. Uh, there was a linguistics analyst, I think, a graduate student. I think we had her on, if I'm not mistaken, earlier on in, in one yeah, of our episodes who needed some data 
to study and see what, what makes these conversations unique. And Doug, you led the project to convert those to text, if I'm not mistaken. And then some people, so she used it for that. And I think some other people wanted to use it as the basis for a bot. Mm. Um, but, but the long and short of it is that you and I have been friends, at least electronically on Facebook for a good number of years. And then we had a chance to meet in person and, um, you have, you have this expertise, which I think can come in handy for us because it's, I don't know, every six months or so, I seem to hear somebody say, what is real, what, what, what really is the relationship here between street epistemology and the Socratic method? And I always think that the answer that I give is not as good or as knowledgeable or as educated as it probably could be. And I don't know if you guys have, have heard those kinds of questions too. We often refer to SE being born out of the Socratic method or inspired or even based on it or something. And it would really be nice to have an expert to, to tell us a little bit about the Socratic method compared to SE and find out what's different and what's similar about it. Yeah. I kind of really only know about the Socratic method from, uh, uh, Bogosian's book and really just seeing a few examples online on YouTube, but there's nothing really that good on YouTube in terms of seeing Socratic dialogues. Yeah, I found a, one little video clip. I was thinking about playing it, but it's from, it's either from like the BBC or the History Channel or something. And I'm a little worried about it, maybe getting a copyright strike. But yeah, th there's not a lot of dialogue specifically um, identified as the Socratic method that I, that I found really good or useful to share. So yeah, maybe, maybe Doug, you can help help define what the Socratic method is. Maybe just a really, really brief hist history on it and what makes it unique. And then maybe we can shift and compare it to SE, which I also know that you're familiar with. Um, yeah, SE seems to be a special um, application of the Socratic questioning. Socratic questioning has been taken over by everybody and has been for a long time. I mentioned Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard loves Socrates. Um, they have uh, the Platonic or Socratic classrooms. They have Socrates in business. Seems like law colleges love to um, do Socratic questioning. And I think SC is a special case in that most of it goes directly to deeply held beliefs, especially supernatural ones. And um, uh, Socrates had a a broader range of discussions with people, mostly about virtue and how to live a um, good life. So his were more broad in general. Um, I, I might take a moment out just to give a, a real quick summary of Socrates and, and how he got about doing things and who he was. He lived about 300 years before Jesus um, he wrote nothing, just like Jesus, and he lived in Greece, and he walked around the marketplace talking to people. He was known as a gadfly because he kind of encouraged the youth. The youth were attracted to him, and he encouraged them to question authority, and of course, he got in trouble with the authorities in town. Uh, but one of his friends went to the um, oracle at Delphi and asked the oracle, who is Socrates, the wisest person in Athens? And the oracle responded, um, there's no one wiser than Socrates. 
And Socrates got pissed because he didn't think of himself as wise. And he was a humble kind of guy. And so he decided to go against the oracle. And to find her wrong, he went and interviewed all the wise people of Athens to prove that he wasn't the wisest. And that's kind of how it all started. Um, maybe I could read one thing with, with Socrates, since he didn't write anything, uh, there's about four different people who did write about him. And the most literature we have is from Plato. Plato was Socrates' student, as Aristotle was Plato's student. And um, uh, Plato began his writing after Socrates was tried and convic convicted and sentenced to death. And uh, Socrates wrote about his trial. So scholars believe that that's probably the most similar to the real Socrates that we have. The first, maybe third of the, the books that um, Plato wrote, we could see this questioning kind of guy. He had really no philosophy involved. But then uh, Plato got involved with other people. In fact, he mentions it by the time he wrote Mino. He had talked to the priests and he started believing in um, uh, that the soul was immortal. Then his whole philosophy changed and the purpose of Socrates, um, the reason he questioned, took a completely different spinoff because Plato was infusing all his philosophy into the mouth of Socrates because he used Socrates as a character in all his 36 books. And it's very interesting because the beginning Socrates is just like SC. I mean, you could take the words and, well, that's SC. By the time he, uh, Plato believed in precept, everybody has absolute knowledge when they were born. It's just a sensory delight of being born made us forget. So we suppress the absolute truth, but it's in us. And all somebody has to do is help us realize we're suppressing this absolute truth. It comes right from the precepts um, page. Uh, was, was Socrates a real person or was he a creation of, was he Plato's creation? Uh, well, scholars believe he was real. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I was in Athens once and I ran into a, um, a archaeologist from Harvard and they were digging in a well and they're pulling up the coins and stuff that were around Socrates' times. And um, since he has four different um, authors writing about him, it, it, it seems likely that he was a true person. But it's interesting because um, if you talk to Christians and they always say, well, was Socrates, you know, true? There, Well, there's more external history around Socrates, but it really doesn't matter, does it? I mean, Socrates, it's not that he lived and died for us. It, he, has, he has good dialogues. He has good stories. So we enjoy the stories, whether he was alive or not, but most likely he was. Yeah, yeah. But the messages and the um, the takeaways from the stories itself are the, are the things that give us value. Whether he was real or not, I suppose, is not all that critical. Yeah. Um, before... You before we got on this live stream last night, you said um, 
I need the answer to a couple of questions before I know where to go with like comparing the Socratic method to street epistemology. Do you, do you want to bring those questions up? Is it worth it? Um, will that help us? Kind I of, guess um, so. If I deeper? have them, <laughs> I don't I, think I, I have them actually. Okay. Pull them up. Did we get I, a, I was actually a thinking I, yet of what the Socratic method is to compare it first. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably, it's probably a good idea. Yeah. So, um, well, watch for my question, Reed. Yeah, like what is an ex what is the Socratic method, and do you have like a a little bit of an example of it? Um, well, as I said, Socrates wrote probably thirty forty. I mean, Plato wrote thirty forty years, and all the dialogues change a little bit, but they're basically mm -hmm. um, coming to a dialogue with a naivety, not having the answers and questioning the person, first mostly to get a definition, and then finding um, contrary ways of looking at it and questioning whether those would fit. The Greeks thought of defining something as putting two limits on it, um, something that is not like that and something that is like that. And so to define, def find something is to put it in borders and those are those borders are what Socrates always wore away speaking to his um, his interlocutors let, let me um, it might be best to read something from the trial of Socrates just a short paragraph yeah. sure sure and it it, it goes into uh, something similar to street epistemology let's see which one I should read here Okay, he's talking about a, a guy uh, at his trial who he um, he wanted to talk to, and he used this as his defense in the trial. With Greeks, they had sophists who would be like lawyers who would give them a defense. And Socrates was on trial for death. I mean, it was a it, he, he did uh, he was sentenced to death. And so the difference between them and us is a person who was um, being accused had to speak for himself. And so Socrates is speaking in his own words here. Um, talking about a guy who uh, he interviewed um, to see, to prove to the Oracle that this guy was wiser than him. In conversations with him, I formed the impression that al although in many people's opinion, and especially in his own, he appeared to be wise, but in fact he was not. However, as I reflected as, as I walked away, while I'm certainly wiser than this man, it is only too likely that neither of us has any knowledge to boast of, but he thinks he knows something which he does not know, whereas I'm quite conscious of my ignorance. At any rate, it seems that I am wiser than him to this small extent, that I do not think that I know what I do not know. And that's, that's kind of the attitude, at least, of street epistemology. Um, he considered himself to have the human wisdom to know that he doesn't have more than human wisdom. And uh, so the people he sought out to talk to um, thought they were wiser. They, they, had, they had a source of information that brought their wisdom to beyond human li limits. And that's what Socrates questioned. So he's always going after somebody to bring them down to reality. And again, the beginning dialogues ended in aporia 
or where the person goes, well, I thought I knew, thought I knew something more than human, but I just don't know anymore. And that was, that was the goal of um, Socratic questioning uh, in the beginning. It's funny because I was reading, I'm, I'm in a philosophy class and we had to read a dialogue, a, so a Socratic dialogue, and it was about piety. You may remember the story. I, yeah. I want to I say Monocles, but I don't think that that's right. But um, it was about, um, basically he was rushing to his trial. Yes. And he runs into somebody and they they start discussing piety and it's just, it, the, the other guy I think has been accused of murdering his dad. Um. But it ends, I had a laugh because the, the dialogue ends with the guy that Socrates runs into saying, uh, basically like, oh, that's a really good question. I don't know. I have to go. And I've, <laughs> I've literally had people kind of give that type of response like, uh, yeah, I'm kind of running late. I need to go. Whether, whether they really did or not, maybe it was just a way to kind of quickly end the conversation and get away could be that story supposedly was right before Socrates' trial. Mm -hmm. I think it. I think it was. I think they, yeah, I believe. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's a it's a, a pretty uh, famous one because it um, asks the question: Is something pious um, in spite of the gods, or do what the gods do make it pious? That that very well may have been the Euthyphro dilemma. Um, is that the big difference that with Socrates, he, he, he more talked about larger concepts like um, piety or um, justice, that type of stuff, whereas maybe with SE, we're talking more about specific claims. So I was actually out today doing some talks, and a guy wanted to talk about suffering, but he wouldn't give a claim. And also, he didn't want to be recorded. So it was like, well, no, I think I'd rather just move on to somebody else. But then as I was getting ready for this hangout, I was thinking suffering may have very well been a topic that Socrates would have loved to en enjoy exploring or um, or maybe even has. I don't know. But it, it was kind of a turnoff for me because there wasn't really a specific claim. Is, is it fair to characterize the Socratic method in that way where it's more about broad subjects rather than specific claims or does it always start off with a broad subject and like piety and then it gets to a specific claim about piety he's all over the board um he'll stop start talking about the war he was in usually there's some type of rapport that's established ahead of time but other times he's smack right into it uh, a lot of his uh, books um have been monkeyed with and there's a lot of apocryphal literature on him too. Um, but, and some of it seems to be fused together in some parts. Ancient literature is just like that. Anything that had to do with the best way to live. How is one to live the best life? And that may, of course, it involves philosophy. It involves social things. Plato's Republic, again, with Socrates as the main character, talks about all the different political um, um, schemes that one could use. And it's taught in high schools and colleges now. So it's hard to pin down Socrates, especially since the beginning dialogues are so different than the ending. I mean, again, in the beginning dialogues, He's helping people reach the conclusion that they don't know as much as they think they know. 
in the, the last part, when in the Mino, he's helping people come into a new realization that they know absolute truth and um, they're above everybody else philosophically. Mm. Those yeah. are completely two, you know, different things. So he's all over the board with that. One thing I might say or notice is that when Socrates uses the method, he may not always do this, but eventually he does come to some sort of conclusion. I mean, like if you ever read the Republic and stuff, he has ideas about truth and about justice and about things like that. So I think he, I think un, Socrates might have said that by using this method, you can come to some sort of conclusion. Like there, is, there might be an answer. It may not be immediately apparent. I mean, it depends on the conversation, but I think he might say that there are some answers here. Whereas when we use the method with SE, we're not necessarily guiding somebody towards a specific answer. We're not necessarily saying this is true or this is not true. Uh, whereas Socrates definitely had specific ideas about you know, at least his own personal thoughts about like the soul and things like that, you know. Well, that's how he was. Um, again, scholars believe that um, through the decades, Plato used Socrates as his mouthpiece and he infused. Socrates would never come down to a metaphysical or even epistemological conclusion. He was, a, 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 he asked questions. Uh, it was only after Plato's, you know, writings took off that he probably just used him as a character. And again, Plato, uh, Platonic uh, knowledge is, uh, you know, the old cave thing mm -hmm. that everybody doesn't see truth because this, the sensory information dulls us, it distracts us. And it's through Socratic questioning that a person learns the absolute truths of uh, of life which which after you die you go back into so yeah i but socrates himself he didn't he didn't know he just didn't know he didn't have those truths yeah he didn't want to pretend to know things he didn't know is that, exactly is that phrase straight out of the dialogues <laughs> uh let me read one more uh, thing sure. here this is the second paragraph i chose to read today I have gained this reputation, gentlemen, from nothing more or less than a kind of wisdom. What kind of wisdom do I mean? Human wisdom, I, I suppose. It seems that, in, that I really am wise to this limited sense. Presumably, presumably, the geniuses whom I mentioned just now are wise in a wisdom that is more than human. I do not know how else to account for it. I certainly have no knowledge of such wisdom, and anybody who says that I have is a liar and a willful slanderer. So they don't want to slander Socrates. Uh, mm. You have to kind of take him for his word at it that way. And again, that that perfectly meets the the uh, street epistemology paradigm, so to speak, that you are checking out. Well, this is my understanding of it, at least. Um, that if if I hear somebody claiming things, I want to know. It, it could be that that they found an answer that I haven't considered, and I want to question them to find out. At the least, I'll find out they're full of shit and they don't know anything, which has happened almost every time. But there might be that one person out there who will be able to let me know that um, God lives within me, and if I accept that, I'll be happy for eternity. Um, but it, it hasn't happened yet. But but the attitude is one of um, charity. 
that you put it on yourself that maybe this guy knows something that I don't know. And I think that's a good way of approaching people because in, in reality, it's true. We get on benders and we kind of go, at least I do, I get off on obsessive things and I need to talk to someone sometime and air my head out and, and think, well, you know, that might not be too much uh, uh, truth in that. And, and so credit questioning, if you have a friend who could do that to you, it's the best way to, to I think of SC kind of like, You've got a garden, and it, some people think of SC as you're planting the right plants. I, I don't think of it like that. I think if you got a garden, you got to pull the weeds. And it's really taking your false ideas and pulling them away and saying, I, I, I don't have any proof for these, so let's just keep them out of the garden until we find out otherwise. It's a good metaphor. Yeah, becoming less wrong. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. So does this um... – does the difference, I guess I'm really, I'm trying, I'm, what I'm hoping to walk away from this, this discussion is a one or two sentence thing that I can tell people that clearly distinguishes the Socratic method from SE. And I don't know if that's even possible, but does it, does it come down to the motivation of the person? So if, if the person really isn't interested in helping the person remove the weeds from their garden and it's more about um, stomping the garden or something, then it doesn't qualify or... Um, you were asking about our motivations as people who are doing SE and I'm, I'm a little curious why you were asking that before the show and how it relates into distinguishing between the two methods. I, I think what I, I did, uh, I've been looking over my paper to figure out what good I could, what I could say about it. And I thought, well, you know, it, it's, it's kind of ironic to teach Socrates because the main idea that is a thread that goes through the whole um, Platonic works is that teaching doesn't work. Um, you, um, if you find out the uh, truth in life, it's because it comes from within you. And of course, with the first episode of Socrates, what you find out is that you really didn't know what you thought you knew. But most of Plato's works are about his end time uh, writings. So it, it um, he does have truth. The difference is that he doesn't think it could be taught. Just like mm. a precept, mm. it, it's got to come from within. You've got to realize that God lives within you and it, the, uh, the witness to your conscience is that Holy Spirit whispering to you. All you've got to do is submit and it'll all be made clear. But until you do, you'll only read the scriptures with a human wisdom and you won't see what's there for that. It's a rebirth that a person needs. And, and uh, Socrates uh, did talk about rebirth in the later aspects of uh, Plato's writings. It reminds me of like the Karate Kid, like wax on, wax off. He's, you know, uh, the teacher there was just putting the conditions uh, in the right way to have, you know, the student learn that way, like coming to realization for himself. Yeah, yeah. I, I think what's interesting about um, Socrates, and this is what I primarily primarily studied, is his approach. He always took the one down position in talking with somebody. He was always cordial. In fact the person that he most liked to meet was somebody who hated him 
because he thought, well, if this guy hates me, he's going to be telling me the truth. He's not going to hold back and he could get an honest opinion from the more angry people that he talked with. Wow. So that's it's actually interesting day. because we, we really try to, when we're doing SE, we really try to build rapport and come, you know, be their ally in the whole thing. Um, I don't know. I think it would be pretty tough to try to do SE with someone who was hostile towards you. I, I suppose I've done it. Yeah, I sure worked in the school districts. <laughs> uh, most of my uh, meetings, I, I usually have about five to 15 meetings a week. And I always took care of the kids who were in trouble. And we had a family meetings and um, they could get quite hostile at times. And uh, Socratic questioning is, is a great way of dealing with a whole bunch of different type of problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people say that they're using SE when... Uh... Well, there was that guy. Do you remember that one person we ran into um, in at QED in England where he was he attended the workshop that we did, and then he said this will be perfect for when what was he trying to do? I think it was like um, it was a negotiation that he was trying to do with um, with the labor unions or something, hmm. and he was really excited about about using it in that in that in that area. It we studied again a lot of different techniques in school and they relate to Socrates. One of the best examples is hypnosis. When a person wants to be hypnotized to go to hypnosis or hypnotist, the hypnotist tells the person, well, what he doesn't tell the person, I'm going to hypnotize you and I'm in control and stuff like that. It's completely the opposite. There's a Socraticness about it. First, they say, I can't hypnotize you. If you're going to be hypnotized, it's you're going to be doing the hypnosis on yourself. I could lead you through it. Mm. In fact, I can't make you do anything you, you don't want to do. So if you think you could be good at hypnotizing yourself, I could be a guide there, but I, I, I'm not the one in control. Oh, see, now this reminds me of the midwifery um, synonym that I, that I saw in your article. Yeah, it, that goes, that goes um, to the um, question, where do ideas come from? And again, uh, with Plato, the idea was ideas, the, the, the major important ideas that aren't corrupted, you were born with and you have to recollect them. Um, but what a midwife would do, of course, a midwife is somebody who helps a, a woman bear a baby. They don't give anything. What they do is take what is in that person and bring it out into the light of day. They, they contribute nothing except for that. And in Platonic, um, the Platonic method does the same except with ideas. Um, Socrates would find an idea take it out of the person's head and kind of examine it and show it around. Mm. The difference between the beginning Socrates and the ending Socrates is the babies were all stillborn in the beginning. We've, he found nothing. He found it all to be bullshit until Plato got uh, ideas of immortality. And then all the um, really exciting information started to bloom in mm. people's heads, so to speak. Question, guys? I have, a, I have another question if you guys don't. Go ahead. Um, 
would an SE conversation be be enhanced or improved if somebody was familiar with the Socratic method? What do you think? Um, well, my primary study of it was has been for psychotherapy. So when I watch your um, videos, um, I find a spot where a person reveals something about themselves. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to be on that like white on rice. And you carry on. But then again, you're not out there doing therapy. So I can understand why you wouldn't do that, <laughs> oh, I even see. if you knew how. Um, I see. Uh, you see um, the person revealing that they're... Uh, they're psychologically dependent on the belief. Maybe you'd want to go in that direction as opposed to. No, if I find, if I find somebody who has a troubling symptom and it's showing, um, it's something we all want to avoid. I, I think one way of looking at the similarity between Socratic method and street, street epistemology is how do you deal with people's resistance? Uh, mm -hmm. You don't want to be talking to a defensive person because they're just going to resist everything you say. Mm. So you've got to get around the resistance. And that's where Socrates took a one down position. Similar to SC, I guess if, if, if I wanted to bring out one thing that could enhance SC from the Socratic position, um, I would, I, and I do say this to people, Hey, I, you know, that's a really cool, deeply held belief. And I want to let you know, in no way do I want you to um, decide differently about this. I want you to continue to believe. I want to examine this for my own self. But please, please, in fact, I couldn't change your mind even if I wanted to. So I want you to feel safe that this is not going to lead mm. to your demise of any kind. Is that your, is that your psychology, though, uh, background talking or is... Is well, else? I could turn that around and saying you're doing a lot of psychology on people. When I you think do so too. Yeah, I do. And, I do think so. Yeah, I call it. Uh, uh, but I mean, your concern, your concern for their welfare, and your concern about them changing their view, is that more? I'm wondering if you maybe uh, have a bias or a concern because of your psychotherapy background, rather than your perception of the Socratic method. Gee, I don't know. I, I it. We, Reminds me of um, of George Harrison of the Beatles. Everybody kept asking him what it's like to be a Beatle. He finally said, what's it like not to be a Beatle? I've been a Beatle all my life. And I've been a psychologist most of my life or worked in psychology. And I don't know what it's like not to. Um, it, 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 the, the psychology that I mainly studied was paradoxical psychology. The whole idea of Socrates and SC. In fact, the questions I asked you guys was basically it, you allow the IL to choose a deeply held belief. It's up to them. You put them in charge of that. But what do you structure or what do you stay in charge of in the relationship? Because it is set by your own terms. Mm. Uh, in the beginning, when you started doing this, you could see those conflicts coming up a little bit more. In other words, you ask them questions, but they don't ask you questions. Yeah. That's setting the parameter very unusual from a normal conversation where mm. it's give and take. So in a way, you guys do set that, but it's in a way where it, it looks like the, the IL are always in charge. Oh, I see. And 
and you just keep with that going. Yeah, I mean, it is framed. I mean, even today, I, I was saying I'm interested in doing interviews with people. I mean, would you, do you have five minutes for an interview? And an interview sort of right from the very get-go implies that this is a a one-way, yeah, almost like I'm directing it. But you're right. <laughs> it's the complete opposite. I mean, I, for at least from my perspective, I think they're running the show and I'm asking them questions. And if they give an answer, then that's the, the next question I, I give is going to be based on where they're taking me. Um, go ahead. Yet they could step out of that frame at any time. Yeah. And turn it around and ask me questions, which is exactly what happened today with, with a, a woman. Uh, it was funny. She ended up coming back. My, my whole goal at this, this time of this time is to actually have repeat conversations with the same person and the same person came back twice within five minutes of leaving for follow-up wow. questions. Uh, it was great. Uh, but she was asking me, in fact, I was looking at some of the comments of the people listening live and they're like, she's doing SE on Anthony. And they were all excited about it. And I was excited about it too. Um, and, um, and this comes up all the freaking time. We, we probably address it every fifth episode that um, it can be a back and forth conversation. You can give your views. Just keep in mind that you what you say could actually cause a person to become defensive, like you mentioned before. I typically find myself doing a little generic version. Uh, I will use Socratic questioning at times, but I'm also an educator. And um, I, I use the example, you can't learn the principles of evolution through Socratic questioning. You've got to actually go get information. It, Socratic questioning is more like connecting the, the dots rather than putting new dots on there. And if you connect the dots the right way, a comprehension comes about. So it's taking material or information you already have and rearranging it. But I find a lot of Christians are very ignorant when it comes to simple things like, well, yeah, there is a theory of evolution, and then there's the facts of evolution. The theory explains the facts. Can you explain these facts another way? And then I, I use it as an opportunity to explain the, the diversity of life, the stratification of the fossil record, the DNA connections. And then I go back into Socratic questioning again. So I'm a little, I, I'm a hybrid uh, SE kind of guy. So I, I do think that the back and forth can work. Um, Carl Rogers is a very good um, Socratic method type of counseling. And it's very difficult to do. He taught it to housewives. And the housewives did just as good as a psychologist once they just learned this technique. But learning the technique, even though it's simple, it's very difficult to master because you always want to inform the person and influence them and have impact rather than let them um, decide for themselves. Yeah, I... I've come to like not feel that urge anymore when I do my conversations because I just, it's always very unlikely to help. And uh, yeah, I, I very, like, I always try to let them bring up topics, bring up their reasoning. You had like two questions for us and you mentioned before, like how, like your question was, the SEers encourages the interlocutor to be in control of the content of the dialogue, i.e. any deep belief. What part of the dialogue does the SEer control? 
In other words, what aspect of the interlocutor's behavior is determined and maintained in terms set by the SER? And here, like I, I wrote down my answer a few sentences. In SE, the SER wants to keep a friendly and positive rapport. The conversation should have an experimental and or playful vibe as opposed to a litigious one. The SER also controls the general structure of the conversation. The SER collects definitions of the terms, reasons, and statements of fact or evidence. And the terms are set in keeping the conversation on evaluating these things. That's, yeah, that's good. That's really good. I would add, um, if you detect that things are getting hostile, um, don't match it, but like go below it. If they're ramping up, you should be ramping down, and they probably will follow you. But if you if you match them in their in their intensity, they're going to ratchet it up more. Um, so that might be one way of kind of controlling it, where where you're you're this whole mo the modeling behavior again is like um, acting the way that you'd like them to act. Now they may still ratchet it up, and they may just be really frustrated that you're not matching them, and they're getting more and more frustrated. I suppose that that could happen. But what usually happens is they model the way that you're pacing it. You're calm, you're friendly, you're you're allowing corrections, you're apologizing if you misrepresented them. And uh, so that in itself might be a way, sort of a way of controlling the conversation. What's another way? Um, maybe the location that you pick, I suppose, is, is a way of controlling it. Are you catching people as are as are running late to class or are they just sort of meandering because they're done for the day? You know, that type of thing. Being courteous yeah. goes a long way. Yeah. I, I, I'm thinking more of a metacognitive type of thing. Metacomplementary behaviors is when you are in an equal relationship with somebody, but mm -hmm. controlling it on a meta level. I think a oh, good example is if you work with a colleague and the colleague comes up to you and says, I'm putting you in charge of going over there and making sure that Jane does a good job, okay? What's the proper response to that? Who the hell put you in charge? Yeah, yeah. You know, putting somebody in charge can be a very directive kind of thing. And you put them in charge and you keep them in charge. Who's really in charge? It's funny you say that because there, there are certain situations where I don't like using street epistemology. And that's when there are people um, either um, I'm working for them or they're working for me. When there's that power dynamic, like if my, my like the maids come right, they clean and they and they um they must know I'm an atheist because of all the stuff laying around my house. But but they'll they'll still they'll still message with the prayer symbol or say have you know have a blessed day or thank God for that. I don't challenge them on it. It it I don't like the power dynamic because they're an employee of mine and I don't I don't like leveraging that. I, I really would like to. Um, have both of us be, you know, seeing each other as equals. Like when I ran into Dan, even though I'm older than him, and I think that in itself might, you know, I, I do notice the college students maybe defer to me. Yes, sir. They're a little bit more deferent to me just because of my age. But I don't, I, I don't like that dynamic. I don't like taking advantage of it. I don't like seeing it because I, I think a, a doctor using the Socratic method, there, okay, there are instances where it's useful. A doctor using the Socratic method with a patient to convince them that, uh, vaccines are really helpful can actually be quite benefit beneficial and they might follow that doctor's advice because she's in a position of power or something but generally speaking i don't like leveraging the power dynamic mm -hmm. i also you know when i first talked to you that's interesting i didn't feel like 
you were trying to sell me something. I didn't feel like you were you had an angle that you were trying to get to. I didn't feel like you had something you were trying to uh, pawn off to me or something. It it really did felt like we were just having a conversation, which we were. And um, that to I mean that takes practice to to get to that level to where you feel like you can be on even playing grounds with people. I feel like you have to have a certain level of experience with conversations to be able to frame those conversations like that, especially if you're first trying out, because I know people who are first trying out and trying to do this, who feel like they're salesmen or something. They feel like they're trying to like get something out there when it really shouldn't be that way. It should just be, you know, an honest approach to just talking to people. Yeah. I'm trying to think now when I, when I moved from the universities to the trail where there were older people, I'm, I'm thinking now that maybe it was a little bit different for me to talk to an older person because now I was deferring to them. And there might even be some cultural differences here. Like, uh, I don't know, let's say somebody was doing this in Japan, perhaps, for example, maybe they would be, they would be horrified at the idea of questioning a person because they were older. I don't know. I'm throwing that out there. Maybe that's a possibility. I can remember when I first started working in the schools and there, there are a lot of con cantankerous teachers who want to kind of tell administration how to do their job. And I did my report and I turned it in and she came back with this report. It had yellow all over it and corrections and stuff. And um, it, that was a setup as far as I'm concerned. The first thing I did was go into my one down mode and said, I'm, I'm so thankful. Anytime you want, can you correct my my papers. I might, might not change them because I'm kind of set my ways, but it's so good for me to see the errors there. She never asked, she never did that again. Um, you take the wind out of people's sails when you could see they're upset about something and instead of getting in front of them pushing back, you get behind them and say, okay, come on, take it a little farther. How farther can we go with this? You, mm -hmm. you want to find a good reason for them to either be having their symptom or their upsetness or something so they don't keep fighting against it because you could be sure those people who get upset with us, they go away most likely and say, I got to stop doing this. And they argue against themselves to the point where they can't hear their own selves. They need somebody to encourage them to almost say, oh, no, I don't want to go that far with it. And they'll pull back. Doesn't that, does that make sense, you guys? Yeah. Or have I gone too far? No, I, I, that's good. I'm, I'm trying to remember now what, what led us down that rabbit hole. But I think it was like... Um, are we doing anything to control the direction of the conversation? Was that sort of the gist of, of what uh, we're talking you, about? You, you put the person in charge of the conversation. And, and I think what SE typically does is allow them to determine the deeply held belief that they want to talk. It could be oh, yeah. anything. It's up to mm -hmm. them. And they got to come up with something. And that makes, well, they are in charge of that aspect. But mm -hmm. you're in charge of putting them in that position in the first place that you can't forget. Yeah. Well, yeah. And you're, you're referring to initiated talks, which is a small portion of the type of SE dialogues, I think, that actually occur. It's much easier in the way Reed does it in some ways. Because Reed is not approaching mm -hmm. the IL. 
they come to read. Oh, this actually reminds me, Reed has been experiment. I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but Reed is, was experimenting with a, do you have a photograph of that handy, hopefully? Uh, I can get it, yeah. Basically, um, he now has a board that, so yeah, Reed does like a sit down setup and a board with different topics that people can walk by and glance at and then uh, pick and walk over to his table. So he writes down, I don't know, six different topics. He's going to show it here in a second. Um, you see that? Where people can pick it. You know, the, when, when I first started, I only wanted to talk about the God belief. But um, gosh, it's been three or four years now where I've been giving people the option of doing so. How's that working out, Reed? I've only done it once. Can you see this? Mm-hmm. Oh, wait. Yeah, Squeak. I see it. Yeah, I tried this uh, last Saturday. I have my table, but then I have my little cart with me, which I bring all my stuff on, and I usually just put my camera on it. But now I have this other uh, little whiteboard where I put questions on the uh, on the whiteboard. So they basically just for topics people can people can walk by and look at. It was very interesting. I got a lot of people just stopping by, reading it, kind of pondering, and uh, it's interesting. Yeah. I think that's very much like Socrates probably would have done. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I think the natural progression of an essay dialogue is not what you see, um, like what Reed does in the park or what I do, but it's um, somebody makes a comment because they happen to be talking about a subject, and then the person is reminded that uh, they've seen an essay video or read a book or some other, you know, something that that brought it to their attention that there's this thing and then they find themselves having the conversation. But I was going to say, even though, even though I encourage a person to pick the topic and they do, sometimes the topic they pick is not the one that we end up on. They want to talk about something broad like suffering, but then it becomes a like they, they, they make mention that um, they're married to a preacher like this woman I was talking to today, you know, and then it, the conversation tends to go, in these weird different directions you know so usually the sometimes the topic that we pick is not the one that we end up with kind of like free association yeah but i had a conversation with someone about abortion last saturday and it ended up being about a soul which then ended up about being about god yeah so yeah that's what and uh, there's like a, this little video on my channel like uh i think a woman asks me um, what we're she says like we're talking about God. Is that why you were out here? Is that what you want to talk about? And I'm like, I basically said that is a topic that I enjoy talking about because there are so many other things based on it. Yeah. We can talk about prayer or miracles or a soul or suffering, but it seems like when you drill down deep enough, you come down to the big question. So why not just start with that? But um, but that being said. I don't like to lead with that because sometimes a person wants to talk about gun control, which sometimes goes down to God. And my dog here. <laughs> There's the dog. Um, it's kind of like if you have um, a person and you say, okay, let's pick a weed out. They'll pick one out and then all of a sudden they'll come to you and go, oh, is that a weed too? That's really bigger than that. And they find other things that they may want to trust with you in, in talking about. Well, the idea, I think, with se is to give people the tools to manage their own garden 
Yeah. Right. That's that's I think is is really the end goal here. Extended um, metaphors. I like it. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the garden metaphor. That's pretty good. And we are planting seeds too, but I, I, it's it's more like um, giving them the tools to 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 discover the weed to separate the weeds from the flowers. Yeah. Well, once you eliminate the weeds, the the flowers can grow better. Mm -hmm. It gives them more room to grow. Yeah. And I think that's a good metaphor for a lot of um, beliefs people have that uh, they'd be better off without. By the way, um, just to let you know, uh, the metaphor between um, Socratic method and SC only goes so far. Uh, I think uh, it, Socrates was a polytheist. He talked about God all the time. He had a little bit different view because he had that agnostic, um, I, I call him an agnostic theist, because he would never really claim that he knew where the other people were more like Gnostic theists. They, they knew that Zeus did this or Apollo did that. And he'd always tap it down to, um, well, that's what you think. Give me another opinion kind of thing. Yeah. Do you guys have any more questions for Doug about Socratic method and SE? Did we make it clear what the differences are? Like is, is SE doing anything obviously very different from the Socratic method? In the method itself, I'd say no. Although I think SC as it is um, today is a little bit more formulistic than what Socrates would have liked. Socrates was kind of like jazz, where SC is like a good symphony. And there's a path you go down. I think it could change. And, and I, I think it probably should, depending on every person's own talents too. Um, Anthony has just a great demeanor about him and he's going to put people's defenses down right away. Uh, where I, I never had that luxury. I had to do my fast talking around uh, any kind of defenses. So everybody kind of brings their own nature to it. Um, but I, it, it isn't just one thing. It's taking a naive position, questioning a person about it, and the pointed questions, um, those are things that people get better at as they go and practice it. So um, there's a lot. I think, if anything, the topic of conversation is probably the most glaring differences um, Socrates had a broader spectrum. He had got into many different types of dialogues. Where SC is primarily about people's beliefs, um, about um, supernatural karma. Uh, although, it, it, that what I the comment I made about Reed's board there when I said that's really like Socrates, it was the topics. The topics were general and broad, and anybody could find something interesting to talk about mm. in that way. Yeah, you know, I guess what would be interesting is to is to uh, on your board or when I'm suggesting topics is to list some of the topics that Socrates would talk about, and then yeah. apply the SE method to it. So, asking people if they want to talk about piety, um, virtue, justice, justice, knowledge, whatever, suffering, maybe even. Even though those those aren't really topics that I'm interested in, it might be it might be kind of interesting to do that and see 
but like it seems like se can't get off the ground unless there's a claim so if, if this like this guy wanted to talk about suffering i i couldn't really move forward with it i mean we can probably define what he means by it but well, if he's like not making a truth claim i don't know where i would go with it that's the hypothesis stage right or whatever in the what is it Humankus? wonder hypothesis like what is justice the interlocutor gives an answer and then you go into the Alunkas, right? And then you revive mm -hmm. based on your right. there or down from there. Mm -hmm. Well, how how Socrates starts out Mino, he asks, uh, hey, where does virtue come from? Is it taught? Mm. Is it practice? Like do you have to learn it like baseball? You just practice it all the time? Is it innate? Or some other way. So he kind of gives a panacea and then goes into um, his interlocutors' ideas of things. He he elicits uh, uh, these from his interlocutors. Yeah. Have this you heard might... of the board game concept? What's that? Have you heard of the board game concept? Mm -mm. Uh, basically, has like you you have a uh, some person or some something you're trying to get other people to figure out and it's kind of like Pictionary, but instead of Pictionary, you, instead of drawing, you have a, this whole board of like different categories of things you can put pieces on to like give people clues about what it is. So that, that reminded me of it. There's a category for person, like alive, dead, or fictional, real, stuff like that. I am wondering though, like throwing out the ideas of like these larger, larger concepts. If, um, if I ran into a theist, if it would almost invariably go to God, um, but I'm wondering now what an how an atheist would answer the question about like what is suffering, what is virtue, justice. Um, they wouldn't probably be appealing to a higher power. Could make for some interesting talks. I'm gonna try it out. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool, Doug. That was great. Cool. Thank you. Uh, you're more than welcome to stick around. We just have a few things we want to cover. So if you have time, uh, just hang out. You can mute your mic too if you want. If you're not going to be talking, okay. Uh, we okay. I'll I'll, I'll t dump it to you, Reed. Sorry. Sure. So next up, we have uh, I guess some announcements. Uh, Dan, any uh, anything going on with your projects? Yeah. So I uh, no show this week. I'm going to go see my girlfriend uh, this weekend, and uh, taking uh, some time off work too to go do it. So. Um, we will be playing an older episode from the archives this Friday. Um, it's the one with Pine Creek, uh, the other Doug that we know. Um, and that was a pretty good one from what I remember. So uh, be looking forward to that. After next week, we'll have, um, uh, I have guests planned out till pretty much all the way till the end of March. So uh, I don't want, I don't like telling guests ahead of time usually. Um, so I'll, I'll keep it uh, on the down low for now. But yeah, it's, it's going to be really cool. I'm really looking forward to the next few weeks. That's great. I guess I'll go next. Um, uh, I'm I'm going to a couple of different conventions this year to give talks. I'll be at NanoCon again. That's in Nashville. I think it's at the end of March, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, go to Nashville Nuns, N-O-N-E-S, and you can learn more about that. Um, we're going to be doing a panel discussion with four practitioners of SE, and I'm not one of them. I'll be hosting it, but we'll have four practitioners who use SE in a variety of different venues. On the panel to discuss that, uh, they did ask me to do the the conference capstone 
talk to end the conference and kind of end things on a positive note. And then the next day on Sunday, they are going to have a workshop. We'll be doing a two-hour workshop for the attendees of the uh, of the NanoCon convention, so people can roll up their sleeves and learn how to do SE. So that'll be exciting. Uh, I am back at the university doing some talks. I I, I took a class today. I'm sorry. I, I scheduled. I signed up for a class, um, which allows me to go to the university and be an auditor, be somewhat like a student. So if security comes up to me, they don't give me too much of a hard time. Um, and that's really fun. It's going to allow me to test some of the things that we just talked about today. And then the last thing, um, there's so much more, but I'll just I'll just throw this in here. We are making some significant progress on the formation of a 501c3 for street epistemology, which I'm really excited about. Um, we've got the paperwork pretty much done. We have a, a board of director, a board of directors picked, an executive director picked. We even have a name for the organization, so it won't be too long where we'll be able to submit the paperwork, get approval, be able to open up a, a bank account, and allow people to donate and get a, a tax uh, uh, tax deduction for their contribution to an organization that's going to be primarily focused on teaching people how to use this method and supporting the people that are willing to help us do that. So um, regardless of where you live, if you need to cover your expenses to help promote street epistemology, if you can make a case for it and demonstrate how you're gonna be going about doing that, there will be a way for you to get reimbursed uh, or at least get some sort of contribution from the organization to help you make that happen. And there are so many other exciting things that I think this organization can do. So it's it's time, it's time for the next phase of it. And, and that's a big piece of it. So I'm very excited to talk about that. Awesome. Sounds great. For me, um, I'm going to be on the Thinking Atheist podcast with a few other SE people next Tuesday. Uh, we did a chat about SE uh, with Everyday SE, Linda Mako, Ben Diesel, and myself. So uh, look out for that. That'll be good. I'm still doing interviews uh, at least once a week. More So more videos will be coming. Um, feel free to tweet at me topics you want me to put on my new little sign there or Facebook message me. Um, and also something interesting uh, come, came up. Uh, if you know Carrie Cook from the Facebook groups or any some anything like that, uh, he invited me to speak or like give a talk with a bunch of like super hardcore Christians or like Christian apologist enthusiasts on April 3rd here in LA, but they won't allow me to record it, but they want me to give like a, a talk on SE and then like do SE on a bunch of hardcore oh, Christians. Nice. Um, By the I, way, I used to go to that group 30 years ago. No way, really? Yeah. Yeah. I know Carrie. Hmm. Wow. What you, like you can go give, read some support when that happens. <laughs> well, I asked Carrie if I could um, go to that and he said he'd invite me. So. I'll, I'll re-go to it. That's all really right. cool. So yeah, that's all for me. Yeah, um, given given the tools to 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 manage their own garden, it's really good. Yeah. All right. Cool. Cool. Uh, thanks, guys. I guess we can just uh, sign off with our social media info. Uh, once again, I'm Breed from Cultural Curiosity. Check me out on YouTube. Also. Facebook and Instagram, Twitter. What about you, Dan? 
I am at Objectively Dan on Twitter. Also, Truth Wanted on YouTube. Check me out there. We just hit over um, 3,000 subscribers recently. Nice. So um, it's going on the up and up. So it's real fun. And his show is on Fridays, Central. What is it, 7 p.m. Central Time? Or did you move it? Central. Yeah, we moved it um, ahead of time. I think it's been for the better. It's We've seen a lot more calls since we've it's done that. 6 so. p.m. Is that right? 7. 7 p.m. Oh, it is 7 p.m. Oh, okay. Yep. 7 p.m. Central. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, all right. So social media. I mean, I have an Instagram, but I don't really put a lot of pictures on it. That's MagnaBosco210. My public Facebook page is also MagnaBosco210. And I created a Minds.com account, which is sort of an alternative to – it's kind of like a mix between Twitter and YouTube, so I'm experimenting with that. I don't have any followers or anything on that. So if you're on minds.com, I think I'm at MagnaBosco210 there. Maybe it's just MagnaBosco. But the best place to reach me really is is Twitter or Facebook Messenger. Uh, if you have any concerns, questions, suggestions, uh, reach out to me on any of those platforms. And I usually try to live stream my conversations on the Street Epistemology Discord server, which is a great forum where people from around the world are learning SE and and uh, sharing their concerns and ideas about it. Yeah, that's becoming more and more active. You got anything to plug, Doug? I got nothing. I, I'm kind of a behind the scenes guy and I have a Facebook, Douglas H. Dean. And if somebody wanted to reach me, they could probably get me there. And how can they find your article? Uh, we'll put a link in the description, but if somebody wants to just Google it later. Uh, I don't know. It is a... Uh, hard copy published magazine and they did give me a, um, a, a copy of it, electronic copy that I could give to people individually, but I'm not too sure I'm, I'm supposed to post it because they sell their magazines like that. Uh, okay. If you, if you want a pirate version, just, just tweet. Yeah. Give me a call. If, if it's an individual thing, I could send it to anybody. Okay. Like very nice. Very nice. Well, it was really nice having you on Doug and good seeing you. Thank again. you. Nice being here. Street Epistemology is a technique by Dr. Peter Bogosian in his book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, and his Android and iOS app, Atheos.